who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Thank you, Calvin, for that testimony. Um, I did not pay him to say those things, to plug Bishop. Uh, I actually had no idea what he was going to say, and uh, so I didn't pay him to say those things. I hadn't, and so now you can all remember that next year, <laughs> that uh, he had such a, that it changes you. It really, it really does. It changes you. So um, please come out to that uh, Bishop report um, today at 1 o'clock, and you can hear some other testimonies and some of the other amazing things that happened um, at Bishop, okay, at 1 o'clock. Um, I, I want to just, before I get into this, I, I just want to say thank you um, to all those of you who worked very hard um, for the retreat, a praise team, the games, <laughs> uh, small group leading, um, uh, the food, the food. Our speaker said that was the best food he ever ate <laughs> at a retreat, <laughs> okay? I mean, because most of the time you go to some mountain place and, you know, you're going to eat like camp food or something like this. But uh, for those of you who didn't go to the retreat, uh, we ate Indian, we ate Mediterranean. I mean, we, we ate really, really well, all right? And, um, and we probably put on some weight, okay? Um, but besides the food, I, I, um, I, I just want to say a little something before we get into this message. Um, I've been the pastor here for eight-plus years. And um, when I came to this church, um, this congregation was so broken and, 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 and hurting that we had a retreat. And I basically felt like I had to do everything, all right? And this year, I, I basically felt like I had to do nothing well except, you know, you know take care of our, our, our speaker. And I just received. I received much from you and from the Lord. And so I want to really thank you. Thank you so much, all right? Um, that's enough. Let's get into today's word. It's a big word. 
Uh, we are in a series called Lies of Our Times, and it's not a long series. Um, this is two out of four, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at four very potent and incredibly pervasive lies that's just that we have in our culture all the time. You have this lie in your own mind. <laughs> you and I, I mean, it's so powerful and so pervasive. We have these lies inside of us all the time. And so, um, you know, we're going week by week and unpacking um, some of them. And so, you know, I, there, there's, there's more than four, but, you know, I'm like, oh, there's like more than four. There's like a dozen. So let's pick four of them. And um, two weeks ago before our retreat, um, I unpacked a lie that's called, uh, I belong to myself. <laughs> I own myself. And uh, another way we call this is autonomy. And I unpacked this word. Autonomy is from two old Greek words. Auto means the self. Nomos, which means law. I'm a law to myself. <laughs> I own myself. And that actually flows into today's, today's lie, which is relativism. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about today. Relativism. If you are a law... I am myself, I own myself, I get to make up my own rules. <laughs> I rule. The self rules. The self makes up his own laws. Then obviously, our, our culture, we, we absolutely believe in autonomous. We absolutely believe in this thing called, I belong to myself. We also believe in the, the next logical step, which is that there is no law above everybody. There's no one law above everybody. It's relativistic. And the way we, our culture tends to say this is, um, is uh, there are no moral absolutes. Hmm. Or there are no, there's no black and white, there's only gray. You guys have heard this? You've, I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this. Um, you, you've been taught this, and people have said this to you since you're very young. And then you go to college, and it's just, it's just powerfully said. It's said so commonly <laughs> that it's considered just a fact. But people don't examine it, and that's what we're going to do. To them. And actually, it's not a fact. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. There absolutely are, there are, there are definitely more absolutes. Now, I want to get at one verse before we even unpack this verse. Um, can, can we put this up there? This is the verse that's going to carry us over through the whole um, text. It's Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. That's what's happening in our society. There's a philosophy. It isn't from God. It's just a, a wisdom that we, we think that we believe. And it is filled with empty deceit, especially today's, the one that we're going to talk about today. And it is, it is just handed down according to human tradition. And um, I won't get into this too much, but yes, there are elemental spirits, um, to put it more um, bluntly, demonic spirits, that, uh, that like sharing these lies. And then we come from, you know, we live in a secular culture, so we don't think that there are such things as spirits, but there are. And then we say those lies of the spirits to each other, and then we, we call it wisdom, we call it smart stuff. Um, that's what we're going to, when today, all throughout this, uh, this series, please don't, you know, see them and, and don't live according to them, okay? So let's get into today's message on relativism in three parts. Part one, uh, there are no moral absolutes. That's the lie, right? There are no, we, we just say there are no absolutes, but what we mean is moral absolutes. That's really what people are saying. There are no moral absolutes. I mean, nobody goes around saying there's no such thing as gravity. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't think that. Everybody knows 
gravity is an, as an absolute that every human being on this planet, it's not, I mean, gravity is relative in the universe, but it's an absolute to us. Nobody says that, all right? What we mean is there are no moral absolutes. That's part one. And I'm going to spend a good lion's share of the message unpacking that. And then part two, um, there are costs. The costs of nihilism, N-I-H-I-L-ism. Nihilism, right? And I'll, um, nihilism literally means nothingism. If you don't believe there are any more absolutes, really it's a pathway to nothingism. Nothingism. And that's the society we're living in, and there are costs. And we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about those costs. In part three, um, we deeply need a healing for the human heart. Healing the human heart back to the image of God. Back to the image of God, all right? Healing the human heart back to the image of God. Because that's what relativism does. It makes us sick. It deeply hurts us. Relativism seems very harmless. Oh, it's far from harmless. It's very, very far from harmless, okay? So let's get into this passage. Um, and it's a, it's a big passage, Romans chapter 2. I, I debated how much of this passage to give you because uh, the more you read it, the number of you will go, oh, this is hard, and, I don't, and this is confusing. Some of it's confusing, but um, uh, Romans chapter 2, it, it's just a big punch in the face to our culture that thinks that things are all relativistic and I can make up my own rules. It's a... Um, it really starts off, actually, we're, we're jumping right in the middle of, of an argument. And Romans chapter 1 basically tells us that the whole world is depraved and fallen. And then it gives you a list toward the end of chapter, of chapter 1 of all the things that we do that are wicked. And then he starts into chapter 2 and he goes on and says, Therefore, you don't have any excuses. You can't go around judging other people because you do them. You and I, we do these things. And then we go judge these other people. You think you can go around judging people for the things, these things that you do? And there's a, there's a kind of sensible, um, there's just a sensible, rational thing going on there. At least if you don't go around doing these things, you have at least some sense that you can see and call it out in other people. But the point he's making is universally, human beings are all filled and rife with all kinds of wickedness, both inside and out. And then he says this thing that um, I, I just want to, um, um, that this is, this is the way, you know, <laughs> Right, where's this verse? Um, he will render to each one, this is verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those um, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, that, that's everybody, okay? Certainly in our time, especially in our time. Those who are sucking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. A relativistic society, that's where, that's where we're going to lead. It's, it's like we, we look at unrighteousness and then we obey it because we actually think it's good because we don't think there's any right and wrong. And then this, we actually choose that which is unrighteous and then we obey it thinking that we're being good. But those, to those who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. <laughs> No, we just love those words, don't you? <laughs> we just love those words, wrath and fury. Now, um, let me just stop for a moment. Um, for those of you who, who are a believer of the gospel, who consider yourself a, a, a follower of Jesus, this is, a, I, this, you know, on the surface, it is, it is a confusing verse because it seems like a really bald-faced teaching. You see it good, 
at least eternal life, you seek evil, wrath, and fury. That just seems like just straight works righteousness legalism. Break the rule, you go to the bad place. Go follow the good parts, and the good stuff will come out. And pretty much um, most normal people throughout the whole world have believed this. Um, now, just for a moment, if you just take that verse uh, out of the whole context of the, out of the Bible, and especially this book, Romans. Romans, there's no book in the Bible that lays out the gospel more clearly, more powerfully than this book. But it starts off with a very clear understanding of human life. And um, the, the first thing I want to say about this is... Um, it just first lays out the most fundamental truth about human life, which is that goodness leads to eternal rest. Evil leads to wrath and fury, or, or the word that I, I, I like to use every now and then is damnation. And the taste of damnation does not start on the other side of death. It, the taste of wrath and fury starts here. It actually starts here because inside sin and evil already has the consequences of sin, which we'll get into in part two. That has the consequences, the fruit of sin and evil. And the fruit of sin and evil is a lot of bad stuff, wrath and fury. And so um, the first thing, I just, this, this verse is not a, a pathway. Is because th we already know this. If you are a Christian, you already know that this thing that I'm going to say to you in a very strong way today, there is a moral law. And it is a moral law. It's capital M, capital L, the law of God above all people, all times and all places. If you are a human being, you should know that this is true. <laughs> I, I mean, um, I, I, don't, I think that we live in a time today where all the smart people, all the so-called sophisticated people say as if it's just a completely obvious thing. There are no, there are no absolutes. I, I think that if you think that, you're, you're, you're nuts. <laughs> Honestly, you're just nuts. If you go to the average person in most countries, they haven't been filled by all this education, so to speak. Or you even just talk to a kid and you ask them, is there right and wrong? They go, yes. And when you ask them if they're right and wrong, do they mean that it's just our version of right and wrong? My people, my skin color, in our time, in this place, that's it? Or they think it's a right and wrong for everyone, everywhere, all times, all places. That's what they all think. The norm of human life completely has no problem with this verse. <laughs> but we also know that we're in trouble if this is all there is. And that's why we need this thing called the gospel. That's why we need a savior. Now, um, now, you know, we, there's obviously uh, our society, if it was that simple... <laughs> Why do all the smart people in our society think it's so uh, obvious that there are no more absolutes? Um, let me unpack this a couple ways. One is because of pluralism. And pluralism means that you, you constantly encounter other cultures. And every culture is built on a moral worldview. You know that? It isn't just based on, built on they like rice and we like bread. It isn't just that they wear these clothes and we wear these clothes. We wear suits and ties and they don't. That's not, that's, those are the really incidental and actually in some ways a lot of the, um, the less important things about a culture. If you get into a, deeply into a culture, they have a moral worldview. 
They think that there are certain things that are really right and there are certain things that are wrong. And when we encounter other cultures and their different religious moral worldview, we begin to think, who knows which is the right one? This is where, this is why we don't, well, that's why we're all unsure. Because we all, now we know, it used to be if everybody that you knew had the same skin color as you, had the same basic religion as you, even though they didn't all follow it equally well. I mean, in America, it used to be Christianity. You know, you go to India, it's, it's, it's dominant Hindu. You go to, you know, you another country, it's dominant Islam, so forth. Then you, you just feel like that there's this, this powerful feeling when everybody you know believes it, then you think that that must be it. That's the feeling of it. But the feeling of it isn't necessarily tell you the exact truth of it. And then now that we live in this pluralistic society, we're constantly bumping up against these other people, especially in a city like this. In a city like this, where, where there, isn't, there isn't one worldview. If there's anything, the dominant worldview is like, it's, it's relativistic. That's actually the dominant religion of, of this city, right? It really is. Um, and so... Nobody feels like they have the beat on this thing. The most, com- the most confident people are the ones who think there's none. But um, actually, if you unpack this a bit, the reason we believe that is because of a feeling, actually. <laughs> a feeling that nobody has it because you're constantly dealing up because we don't have that powerful majority anymore that gives us that powerful confidence. That's why most people around the world, they think that theirs is the right one because they have a powerful feeling of, of the majority. <laughs> But since we don't have the powerful feeling majority, now we've gone the other way. But that's not true either. You can live, be a very powerful, you can be, you can be a tiny, tiny minority and be right. I mean, you don't think that's true? Uh, there are some people who thought that, you know, that white people shouldn't just lord it over black people. That's what they thought 100 years ago. They were a small minority. Were they right? I think they were right. Do you think they were right? I think we were right. But they were not the majority. They were a very minority, and they were a very offensive minority. So that just gives you a sense if you start looking at history. Now, let me unpack this a couple other ways. Um, one is this. Um, one is, let's go to this verse down here, verse 14 and 15. Right? Verse 14. This is an amazing verse. For when Gentiles... You guys want who Gentile, according to, if you're, the, the person writing this is Paul, and he's Jewish. That means he grew up with what, of course, their people consider the law of God. Now, he thinks it's the law of God. By the way, if you're a Christian, you should know that he's right. Okay? And so they were offensive to everybody else. The Gentiles are the people who believe in theirs, and then, especially at this time, they believe in relativism. So if you think that relativism is a new, sophisticated philosophy, it's so new and sophisticated, it's thousands of years old, okay? And all the sophisticated Romans and and the Greeks, they all thought that relativism was right, for the most part. But he goes on to say this, for when Gentiles, the people who typically think of relativism, who do not have the law, he's talking about God's law, do not have the law by nature do what the law requires even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their heart God's law the law the work of the law is actually written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them you know what he's saying 
You can say at one level, there is no law, but you can't escape it. It's on your heart, and then your conscience tells you it's there, and then, and then it, it starts to accuse you, or on the basis of the, or you consider, I follow it, you, excuses you, and it justifies you as a good person. And you and I, if you're really honest, you know this is true. Nobody thinks that there is no moral law. Everybody, from your own heart and from your own conscience, if you do certain things, you can't just go, well, I'm just above it because I can totally make... This is the Nietzschean boast. The Nietzschean boast is there's a bunch of laws out there, and they're just people's laws, but I will make my own, and then... So I, would, I can just do whatever I want. So there's actually a very, very, very famous book that challenges the Nietzschean law, and you've heard of it. It's called Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment is written by a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky. And you know what? He's, he's interrogating the Nietzschean, the Nietzschean boast that there are no ultimate laws, and we can just break them. So at the beginning, I don't know if you guys know this book, but um, I read this in 11th grade, so you know, f- forgive me if I don't remember all the details. But here's the, here's the key part. The major protagonist is a guy named Raskolnikov. He's an intellectual. He's so smart, he's considered these smart ideas. He says, you know what? If I'm, you know, if I'm really like a Nietzschean, that means I'm above everybody else. That's literally Nietzsche's view. You're the uberman. You're the man who is above other people. <laughs> they have rules, but they don't know that these rules are just nothing rules that are all relativistic, and you can just transcend them, and you can break them, and then you form your own thing. So Raskolnikov, if you can do that, that means if you could totally get away with the murder, nobody will ever catch you, and you could be totally okay with it, then you're the uberman, right? So that's what he does. He finds this really poor old lady, and he takes an ax, and he chops her head open. (laughs) That's what happens at the beginning of the book. Guess what? He completely gets away with it. He's right. He plans this murder, chops this woman's head in half, completely gets away with it. And then you know what the rest of the book is about? That his own heart and his conscience destroys him. That's what it's about. See, is it really that relativistic? That apparently is not so relativistic. Apparently, chopping a woman's head apart, even though you can get it, completely get away with it, must be an absolute, right? And if there is an absolute, then shouldn't we obey them? <laughs> Let me give you the, um, the C.S. Lewis argument. The C.S. Lewis argument is this. Uh, you know, the, this is the, you know, there's this term. Even back in the 1940s and 50s when he was considering this, they said things like this. There is, there is no black and white. There are only grays. You know what he said? He says, really? How do you know what's gray? <laughs> The only way you can know what's gray is you have to know that gray is some version of a mixture of black and white, because it's not orange, right? So, the, so there's this thing that we call gray. And gray is what? Now, let me ask you another question. Can you tell the difference between darker gray and lighter gray? Can you, can you tell that difference? Can you tell that difference? I can. If you can't, then you, you have, then you're weird, <laughs> okay? Because I can, and guess, guess what? Everybody I know they can. I just went for car shopping last week, and my dad looked at one color of gray. No, <laughs> I like this one, and he kind of liked the silverish color, lighter, right? 
Why, how is it that you can tell one version of gray is darker or lighter than another? Because you know what is black and you know what is white. <laughs> and you know what white and black are? They're the standard. <laughs> it's the law. That's how you know. And so Lewis says, if you meet a person, and you, you know, this person is generous and kind, and somehow that's good, then you compare it to a person that's utterly stingy and selfish, and you know that's bad, then why is, and then this person, and then you have some gradation of this person is sometimes generous and sometimes stingy. Why do you put this person on, on the scale over here, and then this person on the scale over here, and you know this person is the real rat. This is the person you, want. you never want in your life. This was the person you watch out for. And this is the person you want in your life. Right? How do you know that? Because there's a scale. Just because you go into people and you can't ever get to pure black and white, you never get a pure evil person, and you, never, you don't need a pure, pure, holy, and righteous person, just because it feels like always some great, you, that doesn't mean you don't know that there is a black and white, we all know. One more piece before we, um, I go to the next portion. Um, this is uh, the way our culture does it today. Well, who are we to tell another culture that we're right and they're wrong? Okay, that's true. Because if we just use our own standards and it's only based upon our own history and our own biases, then we're just imposing our biases against their biases. And how do we know Who's really right and who's really wrong? Who's really good and who's really bad? In other words, this thing that you're not supposed to do today is judge other cultures. It's nonsense. Everybody judges cultures. And this is another clue to the fact that this idea that relativism is false. If your mind can look at two different cultures, or three or four even, and then you can make a judgment on various different things. On this culture, these people are generous, good, but these people also lie a lot. <laughs> these people over here are brave, <laughs> okay. but they're also intolerant. These people over here are, are very, um, are, are, are very, uh, very um, non-judgmental and accepting, but they're a bunch of cowards, and they can't stand up for anything that really matters. You know what? If you go to different cultures, this is what you're going to find. And then you can actually imagine a people, a potential culture, a way of life that is above this culture, this culture, this culture and including our culture. You know what you're doing there? You're using a standard. You're using your own innate law written on your heart, which is from God, of the black and white. And then now you're now sifting the gray of every other culture. People go, oh, you're not supposed to do this. Oh, give me a break. Of course you're supposed to do this. <laughs> you can't not do this. So if another culture decides that they're going to use their power, invade us, murder our people, and then impose on us something like, say, Sharia law, we're not supposed to say that's wrong? It's so wrong, we're willing to die to fight it. And if you can't, you go, oh, well, you know, there's just, it's just another way. It's a, it's, a, it's a different way. But it's not a better way or a worse way. Come on. All the people who say that, which is like standard stuff taught in colleges today, this is garbage. And we all know it. You just can't say it out loud. Because if you say it out loud, people will say you're intolerant and you're a bigot and you're a racist and blah, blah, which That's all a lie, too. All we're doing is saying the truth. We're saying the truth. It's just that 
Today, relativism has to be so powerful that, that you can't even say the truth of it. Okay? So relativism, come on. <laughs> now, um, oh gosh, there's so much to say and I've already gone too far. I want to say one more thing, let's go to part two. All right, one more thing. This is from the devil. This isn't a small sin. This is like getting to, there are sins and then there are sins underneath that sins. There are lies and then there are lies that are sort of like the foundational underneath lies First we say, I belong to myself. You know why we think that we can belong to ourselves? Because there's no standards that we have to belong or owe anybody else. You know who gave us this lie? The devil. It's in Genesis, chapter 3. God said, you can have everything in this paradise to Adam and Eve. You're made in my image. But don't break this one rule. Don't eat from that tree. It seems like an arbitrary rule. It's not an arbitrary rule. You know what? Because underneath... It's like, I don't even imagine that this fruit was so much tastier than this fruit. But the point is this. Will you live under my law and my wisdom and my character? The law of God is not just arbitrary stuff. He's not like, I'm the master of the universe. I have these rules. Stay on this side of the line. Don't go on that side. It seems like that. But the principle is, will you trust me and my character? The law of God is actually a gift to the blessing of people because it has his wisdom, it has his character, it has his righteousness, and it's a pathway for us to learn wisdom, righteousness, justice. That's why we can't stand the people who completely flout it. People, because we know that they, that really they're making themselves stub human. Because to be human is to be made in the image of God and to seek the blessedness of being human Except we don't understand, really, it's a blessedness from God. And what did the devil say? Actually, you could just erase that part out. That, that, that's not, that doesn't matter. And he led us to utter relativism, which means, because we think relativism means, that means I'm in control now. That's the temptation. That's why we love this relativism stuff. Because if you can get rid of any standards that can say that you're wrong and you're bad, then you're like, I don't have to worry about wrath and fury because I'm a good person. Because I follow my own standards. I'm in control and I'm the Lord of my own life. That's the lie that the devil offered us. And that's the one we love. And it's death. Okay? Let's go to part two. Costs. All right. Um. Our sister, she, she prayed for some of the hard things that are happening in our culture. And I don't usually um, preach current events, um, and I'm not going to today, but you, you guys know this nasty stuff that Charlottesville, Virginia. I mean, like, how would you like to live in Charlottesville, Virginia now? You live in a town that is just uh, now synonymous with hateful racism. Horrible, just horrible. So... How do all these people who are so relativistic know that that is an evil thing? Because they don't believe in relativism. <laughs> but that, but just, it's not just Charlottesville. It's just all throughout our culture. And it's not just on the basis of race. One, if everybody has their own law and it's all relativistic, there's no place for us to get on the same page. And because you say, you know, you're a bad person and you should repent of that evil. That's because I'm not a bad person. These are my rules. Who are you to tell me your rules? You know what that leads to? It leads to distrust and division and war and hatred. Enmity. 
apart from their people really going to true righteousness, which is the real righteousness, the world will always be filled with this. War and enmity and hatred and distrust and cynicism. And so if you think we used to be a country that was more united and more at peace, it was you know, at, at, at expense, quite frankly, of you know, certain skin-colored people. But even that was better than where we're at now in a lot of ways. It wasn't great for black people, but you can ask black people of a certain generation, was it better back then or today? A lot of them will say it was better back then. So do you think it's a coincidence that our country is breaking apart and there's tremendous hatred and anger in our society? And we are practically about to go to war against each other. Various factions and tribe in our society go to war over politics, over race, even according to gender. The men hate the women and the women hate the men. <laughs> the straights hate the gays. <laughs> I mean, you just name it. Every agenda. The rich hate the poor and the poor hate the rich. Incredible sentences. I just hate even my boss because I don't think he's just imposing his rules on me. See? This is one of the costs. That if we live, that there's no righteousness. And we know that it's righteousness. And that we can walk under it together. Um, let me give you a couple other costs. And um, there is a, it, there's a, there's a famous book. Well, it's not so famous anymore. <laughs> but um, I, I particularly uh, admire this book. It's called Disappointment with God by a Christian author named Philip Yancey. And um, one of my big takeaways from this book is, if, is um, I, I don't think he, it's him. I think he's quoting somebody else, but I can't forget. I forget who he's quoting. It's this. There are two tragedies in life. And this is the part I want you to remember. Both of them are part of this relativism thing. Okay? There are two tragedies in life. Here's the first one. Not getting what you want. You and I all know that one, right? I want to get into this college, and I, didn't, I wanted to meet the love of my life. didn't happen. I wanted to get this job and do really... It didn't happen. And then, you, you know, we're hurt by this thing. Not getting what you want. You know what the second tragedy is? Getting what you want. <laughs> How do you like that one? <laughs> there are two tragedies in life. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. Apart from Christ, apart from his wisdom, apart from justice, mercy, truth, beauty, love, if all there is is getting what I want, you will find out that it's not cracked up what you think it is. Because that's what our culture really thinks. Relativism is about freedom. And if there's rules, then we're shackled by these rules. And if I could throw these rules off, and I could throw off the guilt, and I could throw off the bad feelings inside of me, because, you know, like, who are these things? These Christians made up these rules. The Muslims have their rules. Who, whose rules are these things? Maybe it's just some weird psychological hang-up I have inside of me, and I feel bad about myself. But if I just have enough self-esteem, and then I can get into the Nietzschean boast, I can just get over it, right? Of course, you know, people don't actually say these nerdy things I just said, the Nietzschean boast, but that's what they're doing. I can just cast all these things off. And then I can get and go into life and get what I want. And then they find out there's two tragedies. First one they know of, they're going to find out there's a second one. You don't believe me. Okay. Let me offer you some evidence. I, wrote, um, I read a, a brilliant and terrible and awful essay 
Um, from this is a magazine I like to read. A lot of you guys may not want to read. It's a little. It's kind of nerdy. Okay. It's called First Things. It's like a. I don't know. You probably almost need a master's degree to enjoy reading this thing. It's not. It's not a boast. It's just. It's just hard. It's a lot of the writing can be hard. But this. This article is not hard. Okay. And the article is called Dying of Despair. And it was written by Andrew Cariarty. And let me tell you who he is. Uh, I wrote it down there. Andrew Cariarty is professor of psychiatry and the director of medical ethics at UC Irvine Medical School. And um, the, the article starts off like this. There was a kid named Cameron Lee. Anybody know who Cameron Lee is? Cameron Lee is from Palo Alto. He goes to Gunn High School. You guys know Gunn High School? It's one of the top, top high schools. I'm, every admissions officer at Harvard, Stanford, you know, knows Gunn High School. It's one of the top high schools in the whole country. It's in Palo Alto. Cameron Lee was 16 years old. He was, listen to this, popular, athletic, straight A student. Gosh, he got the girls. He had the athleticism. He's a straight A student at one of the top high schools in one of the richest, most. He's living in, he's living in a place with perfect weather, where the smartest people have. The kid has everything. He's 16 years old. All of life is laid out for him. All you and I want our kid to be Cameron Lee. You wish you were Cameron Lee. I wish I was Cameron Lee. I didn't have the popularity and athleticism. Kind of semi-athletic at best. Okay. You know what Cameron Lee did in 2014? He threw himself in front of a train and killed himself three years ago. Three weeks before that, there was a kid in his own school killed himself, and there was a kid at a local private school killed himself. Three months after he killed himself, a senior at Gun High School jumped off a roof and killed himself. He has everything. Um, there was a survey done after the spate of uh, suicide. So Gunn High School um, started getting known in town as the suicide school. There's, how, there's Palo Alto High School, and then there's the suicide school. How, isn't that great? The suicide school. So at Palo Alto High School, the other one, the not suicide school, but they, they have suicides too, just not as many. <laughs> they have six, they have two. Less, okay? They did a survey. They did a survey among their they're students. This is really scary. Okay. I, I read this, and um, I, I, I had a visceral. I, I got angry. I wanted to cry. I started to pray. <laughs> so here, here's a statistic. 12% had seriously contemplated suicide in the past year. 12%. More than one out of 10 kids. Do you want your kid to go to that school? I don't want my kid to go to that school. Even though I want him to be Cameron Lee. It gets worse. So then, these smart sociologists, they, they did this across the country. Across the whole country. 17% said in the last year, in the last year, they had seriously contemplated suicide. In the Los Angeles school district, this is one year. The whole school district, one of the largest school districts in California, in one year, 
5,000 incidents of suicidal or self-destructive behavior. So, you know, su- su- there's suicide, and then there's attempted suicide, and then there's like self-destruct, like cutting. Because you've heard of cutting. When I was a teenager, I literally knew nobody who did cutting. And none. The first time I met a cutter was in college. It completely freaked me out. I said, you're, ah. <laughs> it grossed me out. It freaked me out. It's common now. 5,000. When they started doing this, tracking this data in 2010 and 11, you know how many incidents they had of suicidal behavior and self-destructive behavior? 255 in the whole district. Last year, five, more than 5,000. Um, one more thing that I'll say. There's a guy named Angus Deaton. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist from Princeton. You know what he got his Nobel Prize for? He studies well-being, <laughs> human well-being. He says, around the whole country, since 1999, there's an alarming increase of drugs, alcohol, and suicide among white Americans born since 1975. He has a word for these, deaths of despair, deaths of despair. You know, you can have everything like Cameron Lee, Lee, and you can just find out you have nothing. And one of the problems, this is a poison that we handed to the Cameron Lees and all these kids and the 5,000 kids cutting themselves and stuff in LA. The poison that we handed them was, there's no right and wrong, and you don't have a purpose in life. You can't know what your purpose is in life unless you can know this is good and this is bad. When you know this is good and then we're going to go this, there's purpose in this direction. And then you can begin to sense that my life has worth when I go in that which is good because that's what these kids have. I, they, go, they can look into their future and say, I'm going to go in there and maybe I'll get into Stanford and then they'll make me run the same treadmill all over again. Then I'll be popular, then I'll be good looking, then I'll get the A's and then I'll make money. And they grew up in the neighborhood where you're supposed to try to get into that neighborhood after you make all the money and everything. And you know what they decided? They said, uh, I guess it's just worthless death. That's the other end of the tragedy. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. Unless you have purpose. Unless there's a light and you know this is purpose, this is death. All right, let me close my message. This, uh, this thing is, uh, you know, if you, you could get all the money, but you really just have nothing. It's called nihilism. That's the cost. We can't live in nihilism. Human beings can't live in nihilism. You can't live in nihilism. You and I, human, nihilism actually leads to death. You can get the money and everything, and then at the end, you're going to go, that's it. I pray that none of you will go, you know what, pastors, I don't believe you. I'm going to chase it. I want, I want my kids to turn out to be Cameron Lee. I hope none of you end up in the equivalent neighborhood. You'll live somewhere in some other city. There's a Palo Alto in another city. And you'll live in that rich neighborhood, and you'll give your kids everything, and your kid will be good-looking, have straight A's, and be popular. And I hope you don't find out that he kills himself. I'm not saying that to scare you. It's real. It's very, very real. It's real. And moms and dads... 
please. Like, we, we just came back from a retreat. And Pastor Min taught us that you can try to seek joy in the world only apart from Christ, or you can do it in Christ, in the Spirit, and that's a different kind of joy. But this joy, the, the Palo Alto Cameron Lee joy, see, there's a poison there. But you want a real joy to offer your kids? Here we go. There's a first, our heart must be healed from the poison of the relativism. And you have to stop listening to the one who makes human beings like the devil, like himself. Stop listening to the devil. Relativism is from the devil. Every time one of your friends say, oh, there's no more opposite, you just go, really? <laughs> really? You mean, you mean all those Nazis aren't burning in hell right now? Why don't you just, just drop that little thought into your coworker, your friends, or your kid when they say these things? You know, deep down, we know there can't only be the rules. Because even if you give us the rules, it helps us to go in the right direction, and then it helps us. But deep down, we know that there's a law written on our heart, and we know we're failing it. And if the rule was just, if this, all there was was the rules, that's semi-helpful, that's partially helpful, there's some wisdom there, but it's not the deepest wisdom there is. Because at the end of the day, you, many of you, I've talked to many of you, you know this, that if, if, if Christianity is just about the rules, then you just follow the rules, and then you find yourself empty, and you find yourself running a treadmill, you fail the rules, and there, it's better, your life is working better, but actually at the end, you're finding that there's something more. So something more. Because we were never meant to be self-saviors and self-lords and self-lawgivers. First, God gave us the law, but the law cannot save us. And then we figure, found out, actually, we can't be our own Lord, and we can't be our own Savior. And we find out we can't be our own Savior because we try to do our, we try to be righteous, and then you impose it on your kids, and you find out your kids hate your Pharisaical self-righteousness. <laughs> For those of you guys who are, wait till you, those of you, you young people don't have kids yet, you're, this is all awaiting you. <laughs> All the parents know, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Wait till your kids get older, they'll tell you. <laughs> okay? And so even our righteousness is poisoned by this. And only the human heart can be changed when we go onto purpose and our humanity starts imaging God, not the devil, not our own lordship. And so this, you know, getting off the relativism is a pathway first to finding out how broken you really are. And then when you find out how broken you really are and you cannot fix yourself, is there someone who can fix me? And the real good news is there is. Jesus didn't just come down to just give us a bunch of rules. He did come down to forgive us when we failed him, but it was even more than that. He turned down so that he could give us his character. He can obey the law before we could, and then he could put the heart that fills the law with God's way, with God's heart, with God's character, and put that into us. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ is for. That's what the Holy Spirit is to put the new life is for, filled with wisdom and justice, righteousness, mercy, beauty, and love. So, cast off the relativism, find God's ways, and uh, find
find God's laws, and then his wisdom, not even his laws, and in that wisdom, find him. Find him. Find his purpose. Find his, his, his generosity and his kindness and that will make us whole. Let's pray. So lost, a bunch of self-saviors and self-lords, which is just saying that we're like the devil. And we bite each other and hate each other and we lord it over each other and we're prideful each other and we tell ourselves lies like it's all just great, but it sounds nice on the outside, but if you just unpack it a little deeper, it all falls apart. And it's literally killing people, Lord. It's literally killing people. It's, it makes us feel empty. And there's so much loneliness and depression. And, and, and it breaks my heart that there's cutting, self-cutting. And if there's anybody who heard this message today, whether they're young or old, and they were thinking maybe I, I, you know, cutting is good or death is better, I pray, Lord, they would hear, not my voice, that they would hear your voice. That there is a better way, and that better way leads to the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. He forgives us our failings and our guilt, and, our, and he washes away our guilt and our shame. And he offers us a forgiveness, and he offers us wisdom. He offers us his heart. He offers us the healing of the poison of all these lies so we can live in grace and mercy and be loved by you and live a whole new kind of life. I pray you, this hope would be offered to us, to anyone who is especially sliding to death, and we can be an offer of the healing of the human condition, the offer of life to those who are sliding to death. Help us worship you now. Help us repent of these lies and give us power to live in your resurrection. The joy in Christ. In his name we pray.